All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them with me. Turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning as we continue through our series called The Gospel According to Luke. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and make one uh, brief announcement. Um, Number one, thanks to Pastor Matt for uh, filling in last week so that I could travel and go visit one of our mission partnerships. Uh, but this, this one is for the members. I'm going to make an announcement for the members. If you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here. We're, we're just excited. So uh, please know that we would like to meet you out in the lobby. We've got um, some resources, a free gift we'd like to give you. We're just thankful you're here. But this, you're just going to have to endure one little housekeeping announcement uh, as I get in here. We have a wonderful, awesome, fantastic problem at Metaview. And so it's a wonderful, fantastic problem because uh, there's a solution, and the solution comes from the membership. Uh, I've made a few announcements about this over the past several months, but it's time for me to make another announcement about about this. We have a fantastic children's ministry. It is fantastic. Uh, Lauren Landry has stepped in, and she's doing a fantastic job back there getting things organized and running a children's ministry. So wonderful. Our Our rotation of volunteers are on about a five-week rotation right now serving during the service, um, and they're doing a fantastic job, but five weeks is a little much to ask. Uh, And so I want to tell you, this is a ministry that is vital. It's a ministry that's vital for this church. Uh, Next to the quality of the service and the teaching and and the worship that goes on, the next area of ministry that visitors and young families really look at when visiting a church is the quality of their children's ministry and what is provided in child care during the service. And so to not be able to adequately provide an outstanding um, service during the service for our children is a disservice not only to our church but also to our community. It's a disservice for our visiting families who come in and look for a safe place to have their kids during service. Uh, Now, we have a wonderful, excellent children's ministry. The issue is is we simply need more to serve. I know many have been, uh, you've received phone calls if you're a member. You've been asked if you've not received that phone call. Heads up, you might get a phone call. Uh, We're asking you to step in even if you don't have children. For the most part, everyone who's a member in our church who has children is already serving in in that rotation. And so uh, we simply just need more bodies back there uh, helping out. So um, Ecclesiastes 4.12. A a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I've used this verse before when talking about church membership. And just real quick, there's three areas of every member that needs to be held together for you to be a strong, healthy church member and for us to have a strong and healthy church. Number one, number one cord is corporate worship. That's exactly what we're doing right now. We ask our members to be active, to participate, to be a part of corporate worship, uh, which is exactly what we're doing. Number two is to be part of a small group, to be part of a Bible study, whether at 9.30 a.m. or one of our men's or women's Bible studies on Wednesday nights, that you can be part of a small group of people that know you. Because we all know that it's easy to hide in a room this big. It's it's really easy to come in and slip in and sit, hear teaching of God's word, worship, and and then exit. But really to be known and to be loved and to be part of a church, we ask you to engage in the lives with others in a smaller group. And so that's number two. And number three is to be active in service. So there's a three-chord strand for a member that you would be active in worship, active in in, uh, Bible study, and then active in serving. And so there's four main areas that we would ask you to serve in. Child care, number one. 
It's the most vibrant and growing area. We just had another baby born this week, praise the Lord, right? And so it's growing one way or another, but our children's ministry is growing. And so child care is one of the areas that we would ask you to serve in. Number two, we would ask you to serve in media. The sound guys back there are doing a great job. Uh, one of them right now is doing double duty. He's doing child care and sound at the same time, back there bouncing a baby. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, we, we just want you to serve in one of these two areas. And a third area would be connect as you come in. We would love not only to say hi to you and greet you, we would love to connect you to many of you, to connect you to members and people of this church so that you can, you can know people. And you can be connected to different ministries that are provided here. And, and then finally, a security. Um, many serve week in and week out, uh, just, just keeping us safe while we gather. And so if you're a member, I ask that you would please help us carry the load. That you would, uh, by the end of service, that you would come talk to myself or you would talk to Lauren. We would love to plug you into one of these areas. And, um, and really, here's, I'm going to end with this. Here's what I know. You and I, we want to do whatever we can for the glory of God. You and I, we want to do whatever we can to welcome in young families to the Metaview Fellowship because we believe in the ministries that take place at Metaview. And in order to do that, we need to provide a vibrant, healthy children's ministry during the service. And it'll take all of us to do that. So that's my quick, quick, like in parentheses, announcement about that. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 4. Of Luke. We're going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. We've now reached week 14 and we are about to finish out chapter 4, picking up in verse 31. But as, as we're going there, we really need to kind of back up just a little bit and start in verse 16 because what Jesus reads when he's in Nazareth is going to take place now as he reaches Capernaum. And so as he moves from town to town, you're going to see the, what he has prophesied through the, what he's read through the prophecy of Isaiah now coming to flourishing in these verses. So, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now Jesus, he essentially is declaring that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. The, the prophecy that was written long ago is now present. And so as we get into this, this end of this uh, chapter, verse 43 is really a key verse for us because this is the first place where we see the term the kingdom of God used by, by Luke. Verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent to proclaim the good news. He was sent to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. Now, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is wherever a king rules, the territory in which he reigns. And so if you talk about the kingdom of God, there's in one sense you could say that God rules everywhere. So everywhere is the kingdom of God. But more specifically, according to Scripture and according to the overarching biblical narrative that we're given, the kingdom of God is that which is ruled by God's appointed Messiah, who will be the redeemer, the king of all. 
So the kingdom of God is both a present reality, but also a future uh, hope and, and assurance. It's the present because people live in submission to God's authoritative word, but it's also a future because there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he will establish his kingdom. And so we see in Revelation 14, 11, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue conf confess, shall confess to God. So we see here the future, and now in, even in, in Mark's gospel is a parallel passage, chapter 1, the kingdom of God is present. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is this kingdom of God? It is the spiritual kingdom of truth where Jesus, our Messiah, our King, reigns as Lord over our lives and over the lives of his people. It is now. It is here. Because Jesus has arrived. Before we read today's scripture, let me read this quote by R.C. Sproul as he quotes John Calvin. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks. Because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world, before Christ comes, is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects to the king. Let's read Christ's kingdom authority, picking up there in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 38. As he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but... He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the account that was given by Luke, that we can read the account of you establishing your kingdom, you being the Messiah, you being the king, you being the one with all authority and power, you being the one that has dominion 
and control over all things. You are sovereign, and we thank you for that. Today, as we read your word, I pray, Father, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us from the inside out, that you would sanctify us, you would make us more and more into the very image of your Son. Father, we thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here we are, a whole day in the life of Jesus, a day of the Sabbath. As Jesus attends the synagogue, he's there, he's teaching, he teaches with one with authority. People are amazed. A demon-possessed man is there in their midst. He casts out the demon. And after service, he does what many of us do. He went to have lunch at someone's home. And so he went to Simon Peter's house, and they eat there, but his mother-in-law... Is sick with a high fever. Luke points out the fact as a physician that this is a high fever. This is not just some normal fever. This is a high fever, meaning that she's very sick. And he rebukes that, and she gets well. And then as the Sabbath day is coming to a close, and all the legal rules are starting to be lifted, people are coming from all over the place, carrying their burdens, bringing people who are sick, bringing people who are demon-possessed, and laying them before them. And he heals every one of them. And the next morning, he wakes up early, Mark's gospel tells us he goes off to pray in a desolate place so he can be one-on-one with the Father. And he comes back, and they would keep him there. But he says, you know, there's a purpose. And the reason I'm here is to preach the good news. The kingdom of God is here. So what I've done is I've given us four different areas that we can dissect the rest of this chapter. And so we see not only that this reveals to us the identity of Jesus, who he really is, but it demonstrates to us the progressive nature by which the kingdom of God moves throughout the world. We can also see this pattern of kingdom expansion today. So number one, Christ's kingdom authority is in the church. Now, a little bit of liberty here. It was actually a synagogue here, but we're just going to go ahead and say church now. So the gathering of those who want to gather for the reading of God's word, first, that's where God's word establishes his authority. Jesus establishes his authority. Then it moves to the community. Those As you leave the body, as you leave the gathering, you go back into your homes and you go back into your community and then you see the kingdom of God being established in homes. And so this is the pattern I want you to see that as as you grow as a church, as you grow in your faith, as a body of believers, the authority of God's word that you hear here then goes back into your homes as you raise your children, as you live under Christ's authority in your homes. And then as it spreads from there, the crowds begin to come. And so you have crowds coming. And who are the crowds? Well, the crowds are all the people in the town. These are the people you work with. These are the people you go to school with. As God's authority has been established in your life here at the church, then is established in your home, it then will spread into your workplaces and into your schools. And not only that, as Jesus wakes up the next morning, he says, listen, I can't just stay here. The word, the authority of God's word, the kingdom of God must expand. And so... The only word I could come up with that's a C word, so it would make sense, is cosmos. Okay, so world is what I mean by cosmos. So he continues to go. So let's work through these four rather quickly this morning. Christ's kingdom authority in the church. Verse 31 and 32. And he went down to Calpurnium, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Here we see, again, verse 18 being fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He comes and he preaches, and he preaches the word, but he preaches in a way that has authority. It's as if he's the one who is the author of this word. He comes and he preaches this word. It's spirit-filled. It has power, and it astonished those who heard it. Now, these are people who listen to the word 
week in and week out. They gather together. They're faithful to listen to the Jewish scriptures. And yet today, something is different. There is, there is a clarity and there is a conviction that comes along with the words of Jesus Christ. Astonished re- means that they were struck with amazement. Their, their mouths dropped open. Now, yesterday I had the privilege of going to a Lee University basketball game. And right at the last second, five seconds on the clock, we needed a three-point play. Two men are guarding our guy, and he makes the three-pointer to send us in overtime. Bad news is we lost in overtime. But that moment, like everyone's mouths dropped in astonishment. Like, I cannot believe he made the three-pointer. As Jesus is teaching, mouths are dropping. They're, They're in shock that this is going on. So what does that mean? It means that his word was so authoritative that it pierced them to their soul. It convicted them with such clarity that they were astonished by it. Amy Carmichael, who was an Irish Christian missionary in India, she ran an orphanage for some 55 years. She said this, If you have never been hurt by the word from God, it is probably that you have never heard God speak. Listen, if you've never been hurt by the word of God, you, you might be like the ones that were sitting in the synagogue, just listening to the word of God week after week after week, but you were never pierced by the word and the authority of God. So here's my question. As we look at this progressive nature of the kingdom of God, as we sit in the church today, does God's word hold ultimate authority in your life? Now, before you say yes, really ask yourself, does the word of God hold ultimate authority? Meaning, Am I astonished by it? Am I struck by God's word? Am I convicted by the clarity of his word? Am I living in submission to the word of God? Or am I simply attending religious functions? This is where the authority of God's word establishes itself. The kingdom of God establishes itself with the authority of God's word in the gathering of those who hear the word of God. So God's word. 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, Romans 10, 17, Hebrews 4, 12. These are all verses that we can look at and we can say all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, You heard it from us. You accepted it not as a word from men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And by faith, and faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing in the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of men. Is God's authoritative word convicting you? Are you living under his authority day in and day out? Because in many Christian circles today, there are crowds of believers gathering in attendance. They're joining others in service, and they are paying homage to a king. But the majority of their days are spent bowing their knee in submission to idols. Why? Because easy believism has watered down the authority of God's word and placed ourselves, our emotions, and our desires in the position of authority to remove that conviction and to cater to our comforts and our sins. Sure, we pay homage to the king. 
We say we are in his kingdom. All the while, we are bowing our knee to lesser idols, the lesser idols of pleasure, satisfaction, sensuality, and self-indulgence. The authority of the kingdom of God begins in the gathering. It begins in the church. When the church says, this is the authority, and this is what I submit my life to, day in and day out, I'm not just paying homage to the king, but I am bowing my knee to him in every decision of my life. And that is the kingdom of God at work in the life of a believer. As Paul sent Titus to set up a church in Crete, he said this in, second, in the second chapter, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Verse 33, Luke chapter 4. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He is there. You can't miss the irony of this, that in the gathering of those who gather together for the reading of Scripture, there is one who is possessed by a demon. There is one who sits there, and he sits there in a refusal to submit to Jesus' authority. And he knows exactly who he is. Luke tells us that he's there and he's possessed with an unclean demon. Now, Luke's going to refer to demons some 23 times, but this is the time when he refers to it as an unclean demon. Now, we could all agree that all demons are rather unclean, right? But he's making this distinction because this means that there is an immoral or unholy element that is being driven in this man's lifestyle. So there is a man who is possessed by an unclean demon, who is sitting in the gathering of those who are hearing the word of God, and yet he is marked by a life that is immoral, that is unholy, that is ungodly. He's engaging in immoral acts. We don't know how long this man has been attending the synagogue. We don't know uh, if, if others know that he's been infected like this. Possibly he's managed to conceal his inner struggle and hypocritical lifestyle for years. We have no idea. But we know that he's here, and he's here in this moment. Now, the majority of demon encounters that happen in Scripture all happen in the Gospels. In fact, there's only four other areas where demons are even mentioned as possessing people throughout the Bible. You've got two in the Old Testament. You've got two in Acts outside of the Gospels. And so you see that there's this, there is demonic presence, but it is heightened as Jesus comes on the scene and begins to establish his kingdom. James would say it this way. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, we see here that this demon knows the destruction is coming. Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons, they know that they're on borrowed time. They know that there's a place that's been prepared for them. They know and they shudder at the presence of God and his authority. They even acknowledge his presence. They acknowledge his authority. They even say who he is. And yet they still seek to destroy his mission and his people. Kent Hughes says, as foul things scurry from the light when you lift a stone, 
evil spirits, lovers of darkness, recoil from the light of Christ. Bob Utley says the demon's recognition and testimony was not meant to help Jesus, but to add to the Pharisees' charge that his power was from Satan. Even in their declaration of who Jesus is, they're trying to disrupt the kingdom of God. Luke 4.35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So not only is this demon acknowledging who Jesus is, now the demon is obeying the word of Jesus. Demons are actually capable of doing these two things that would fool most people into believing that you're a follower of Jesus. If you publicly declare or publicly acknowledge Jesus for who he is, and if you publicly have moments of obedience, you can easily say, yeah, I'm a believer. But yet there's something that's missing here. Even though he's in attendance, even though there's an acknowledgement, even though there's some obedience, there's an inward and personal defiance, a hard-heartedness towards the Lord. And that's the difference. You can sit in a gathering. You can sit under the authority of God's word. But if there is a personal, hard-hearted defiance within your life, you're not bowing your knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Even if you do say you know who he is. Even if you do follow through with some outward acts of obedience. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6 would say. That you may, not, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We certainly are in a battle. And Jesus has all authority. When he says put on the whole armor of God, really he's saying put on Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. Christ is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and life. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Put on the gospel of peace. Jesus has brought us peace with the Father through his sacrifice. Jesus is the shield of faith. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is our helmet of salvation. No one can take that salvation away from us. No one can give us a fatal blow. He has saved us from our past, present, and future sins. He is the helmet of our salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. It is Jesus put on Jesus when we face many trials and many temptations. Luke 4, 18b. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We've just seen it take place. And recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 36, And when they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Number two, I'm going to pick up the pace here. Christ's kingdom authority in the community. As they gather, now they go home. Luke 4, 38-39, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So we see again the progression of the kingdom of Jesus' authority. It starts in the synagogue, starts in the church, starts in the gathering of believers, and then it expands to the community. It goes to your homes. And so Christ's kingdom authority in the church should also be seen in our homes. We shouldn't have our Sunday best on and then go about our lives. We should have... What, what is happening in our homes, also happening in the church, and then vice versa. So, it was customary in those days for the synagogue to conduct a mid-morning service, much like this one today. 
And it was customary for you to then leave the synagogue and go and eat lunch in someone's home immediately after service. So if you go home today and you have a meal and you invite people over, you're being biblical. So let's be biblical. Let's start inviting one another over to our homes. And maybe you're not ready today. Maybe you're like, I don't have anything in the crock pot, Jeff. So here's a warning. Next week, you could have a roast in the crock pot and you could talk to someone today and say, hey, next week, I'm going to have a roast in the crock pot and I want to invite you over to my house because I want to be biblical. Okay. I just want to do what the word says. So I'm going to invite you over to my house. I'm just going to throw that out there for you. All right. So here we go. Jesus, Simon Peter's house, mother-in-law sick. We see that Jesus not only has authority in his word, his teaching, not only authority over the demonic spirits, now he has authority over sickness. So let me make this statement. It's important as we get into this first healing miracle of Luke to address that. Can Jesus still heal people? Yes, absolutely. Does Jesus still have authority over evil spirits and fevers? Yes, absolutely. Do we always see this happen when we pray for people? No. No, we don't. Is this an indication that we didn't have enough faith? No, it is not, even though that's what some would try to teach. No, it simply shows that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is revealing himself in his kingdom, and how he does that is working through these miracles and healings. Let me read what Stephen Cole says. There's such confusion today about some teaching that Jesus promised to his disciples that they would do greater works than he did, John 14, 12. means that we should routinely be seeing miracles of healing and even resurrections from the dead. If that's what Jesus meant, then Paul was in sin when he told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach ailments in 1 Timothy 5, 23. He should have told him to just claim a healing by faith. Paul must have lacked faith when he told Timothy that he left Trophimus sick in Miletus in 2 Timothy 4, 20. Why didn't he heal him? When the author of Hebrews wrote to the second generation church, they had to be reminded of the signs and wonders that the apostles had performed in Hebrews 2.4. It is obvious that those miracles already had diminished in frequency. To claim that we should be experiencing the same frequency of miracles that Jesus did is to misunderstand the purpose of the miracles in the Bible. First, they authenticate his person and his teaching, proving him to be the Messiah sent by the Father. Second, miracles show us that who Jesus is. He feeds the 5,000. He claims to be the bread, the bread of life. He claims to be the light of the world, and he opens the eyes of the man born blind. Third, the miracles give symbolic lessons of spiritual truth. The sick and the dead represent human, the human race broken under sin. Without Christ, they're helpless. But when he speaks the word, they are instantly cured. Thus, the miracles show us God's great gift of salvation and finally, the miracles show us either implicitly or explicitly how we should respond to Jesus Christ. We must come to him in our utter helplessness and cast ourselves totally on the mercy of God. The miracles also warn us how not to come to Jesus. Since many sought after him, not so they could follow him as Lord, but just to use him for their own selfish purposes. It says that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after miracles. So we see that these are miracles that are done to establish the kingdom of God. Number three, Christ's kingdom authority in the crowds. Now when the sun was setting, verse 40, all those who had any who were sick 
with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on, the, on every one of them and healed them. So again, the progression. You see it in the church. You see now it moves its way to the community. And now the crowds are coming. Now that the, you know, the legal uh, restrictions of the Sabbath day are, are being released, they can now travel a certain distance. They can carry loads. They can carry things. They're now bringing their sick to Jesus. And the crowds are being met by Jesus. So word is spreading fast. We saw there in verse 37, that reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. You ever go home from church and talk about things with other people? Oh, you won't believe what happened today. Listen to this. This happened in service, and that's kind of what is happening. It's beginning to spread, and they're talking about Jesus. And by the end of the day, everyone's saying, we've got to see this Jesus. The kingdom authority of Christ that radically changes people in the church should flow out of that corporate gathering into the fellowship we experience in our homes. But it doesn't stop there. The crowds of people living all around us should be impacted by the gospel truth. As we leave here and as we go into our homes and then as we go into our workplaces and our schools, the kingdom of God should be evident in our life and should impact those that we do life with. The crowds of people, as they come and they say, I want to know who Jesus is. I want to know what he's doing in your life. I want to see the radical change that came from the authority of God's word, the conviction that then led to a change in your life. Verse 41, and demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This little section here distinguishes the fact that they were casting out demons and he was healing the sick showing that not all diseases are due to demonic oppression and power. Some diseases are just diseases. Finally, Christ's kingdom authority in the cosmos, in the world. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Here we go again. We see this progression the kingdom of God starts in the church, moves to the community, then to the crowds, and then Jesus comes and says, listen, it can't stay here. It can't just be for this group of people. It has to be preached in all the towns. It has to spread out to all the world. Mark tells us that he went off early that morning to pray. He was getting himself in tune with the Father so that he could be in tune with the Father's will. And so it says there in verse 43, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Again, this is the first time that Luke mentions the phrase kingdom of God. He'll mention it some 31 more times throughout the gospel. But he's showing that he wants to be doing the Father's will. He's met with him. He's got up early. He's prayed. He's got in tune with the Father, and this is the Father's will, not that you stay here, but that it's spread out. Spread out from the church, spread out from your home, spread out from your community, and go into all the world. The kingdom of God has been given to us to spread the good news. So we pray. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 5 through 10. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, 
Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer for people who do not want to stay where they are. If you pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, you're saying, I don't want to stay where I'm at. I'm not comfortable with religious routines. I'm not comfortable sitting in pews and listening to the word week in and week out without there being a life change because of the authority of God. I want your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. And that means I must bend my knee and I must bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if there's areas of my life that I've resisted you in, then right now I'm praying that you change my heart. Because without you bending me, I will not bow. Because I am a sinful person. I am someone who is stiff-necked. I'm someone who fights. And I'm someone who is rebellious without Jesus Christ and his spirit bending me in repentance. This is not a passive prayer or a prayer for wishful thinking. It's simply or simply a futuristic prayer. It is a prayer of obedience and operation, meaning you can't pray for something you don't intend to take part in. Let me finish with this quote. Elizabeth Elliot says, Does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we are not obeying the thing that lies before us today? Does it really make sense for us to pray about the future? If you're not willing to bow your knee today, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have established your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You've came and you set up your kingdom. You showed us who exactly you are. And now, as we have these words, we read them, but we read them wanting you to change us, to mold us from the inside out. Today, Father, I pray that if there are many of us who have just simply come to pay homage that you would break us, you would bend us, that we would be people of repentance. If there's areas of our life that we've served other than serving you, God, forgive us for that. Allow us to be a people, a kingdom people, who listen to the authority of your word here and let that authority then carry into our homes and carry into the crowds and then carry into the cosmos, that we would be your people who are sent out to proclaim the good news to a lost and dying world. Father, I pray for many of you today. I pray that people who have gathered today would be impacted by your spirit and your truth. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond today?